The reading this morning from Romans chapter 13, you'll find that on page 1140 in the Church Bibles, page 1140. Romans chapter 13, beginning at verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be, are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the next big event in God's great plan of salvation is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, there's been no great significant event in the plan of salvation since the day of Pentecost until that uh, return of the Lord Jesus to earth. There have been plenty of good things happening, but nothing has been done that will have achieved our salvation since the first coming of Christ and when it's all completed at the end. And the question we have put before us this morning is, are we ready for this? Because it is wise to look at life through the perspective of the end. And in doing so, the Christian faith is immensely practical. It's not mystical or simply otherworldly. It doesn't divorce the spiritual from the material. Indeed, Christian spirituality is all about daily living. And the Apostle Paul, writing to these Christians in Rome in the middle of the first century, gave them guidance on how to be both good citizens of the state and good neighbours to those who are around them. And in the passage that we're looking at this morning, he tells them why their lifestyle should be different. And the answer is that a new age has dawned. So let's uh, focus particularly on verses 11 to 14. We won't ignore what's been said before, but um, it comes up. Now what Paul is talking about when he talks about a new age has dawned, he's not talking about the age of Aquarius, which is what I think it is, um, what some people currently think the current period is. If I remember from the, when was it? the 70s, we had the yeah. Um, or some other astrological age, nor does he mean some great new epoch of world history, such as the, 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 uh, the Renaissance, the Reformation, the Enlightenment, the modern age, or the postmodern age. 
they're all identifiable periods of history. But as far as the Bible is concerned, there are only two ages. There is this age and there is the age to come. There is the kingdom of heaven and there is the kingdom of this world. And for most of history, if you have a look at the outline, you'll find it helpful, particularly when I correct myself, that um, the first drawing is supposed to be two separate circles, not interlocking circles, but you separate them out. And um, the one on the left would be this age, and the one on the right, the separate one, would be the age to come. That was the perspective in the Old Testament that they had revealed to them that the day of the Lord would usher in a new world order. This was their great hope, the age to come. The kingdom of heaven would come to be present on earth. But what they hadn't quite realised was that the age to come, the kingdom of heaven, was to arrive in two stages. In the first coming and in the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where you get the New Testament perspective. Where the new age has entered the old age. But it's not fully or completely arrived. Hence the interlocking nature of the world that we now live in. You see, in the person of Jesus, 2,000 years ago, the new age arrived. The kingdom or the rule of heaven, not to wipe out the old age yet, but to form a bridgehead into this world. The age to come has gained a foothold. We can now have a taste of that world as it will be forever, which means that this, the earthly age, is in its death throes. Its days are numbered. How long it's got, we don't know. What we do know is that there will be a time, one day, when this world will be up and there will be a new age when the Lord Jesus will live forever in a perfect new heaven and new earth with all those who love him. Now in Old Testament times they could be excused, in a sense, for dozing off with their long wait for the Messiah to arrive. But Paul is saying, now, in his day, he has pitched up in the first century. They should therefore wake up. He says, the time has now arrived. There's been a long wait for the Messiah to come, but now he has. If they've dozed off waiting, they should wake up. The time has now come. Today is Advent Sunday. I don't know whether you realise, but of course... At this time of the year, as Rob said at the beginning, we think not so much about the first coming of Christ as a baby, but, it is, but of his return as Lord. We think of his coming at the end of time. That should be our focus. And indeed, not just at this time of the year, but the whole year. It's by orient orientating ourselves around the future coming of the Lord that we are enabled to properly see this world as it is and to live accordingly. The returning of the Lord Jesus Christ is, therefore, our focal point. That is the end game. And all our decisions, all our actions should be in light of that. So the time has now come. The second reason that the apostles, Apostle gives them to wake up is that their salvation is nearer now than when they first believed. 
which is both a very simple and a very obvious truth. However long they've been believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, since time marches on, they're now closer to his return than when they were converted. When the Bible speaks of salvation, it actually has three periods of time in mind. It can be talking about our past salvation, justification, or our present salvation, sanctification, or our future salvation, glorification. Now, justification is an event in the past, possibly remembered by us ourselves very clearly, but certainly known precisely by God, because it was at that point, at the confession of our sins and our trusting in Christ for salvation, that God declared us right with him. He accepted us. The picture is of the law courts, being found guilty by the judge, but at the same time the judge saying is that he has paid the penalty which we deserve for the wrongs we've committed. And so, although we're guilty, he acquits us. Now, of course, the judge is the Lord Jesus Christ. He was not only the judge, but he's also the one who paid the penalty for our sins. When the Bible speaks about sanctification, it talks about a process, which in most of our experience has been a rather sort of bumpy experience, I guess, for most of us. We set off, but then we slip back. Then, by the grace of God, we're forgiven and we're restored, and the process goes on again. It's rather like a graph where we go up, we slip back, we get restored, we go up, we slip back, we go up. But overall, there is progress. If we are genuine believers, if we cooperate with the grace of God, then over time, although we have our setbacks, we make progress. We are not what we once were, as Paul writes to the Christians at Corinth. And then there's glorification, which in his writings Paul speaks of in various terms. He talks about the freedom of glory, by which he means that we will no longer be limited because of our propensity to have sinful inclinations and to give in to them. Rather, we will be exactly as we were meant to be. And we will be, amazing as it sounds, incapable of sinning it will be impossible for us to sin. That is what heaven is like. He also talks or expresses um, glorification in terms of our final adoption as God's children. Now imagine that you are a six-month-old in a children's home. For whatever reason, your birth parents have uh, placed you there. You are effectively an orphan, left alone, on your own, without anyone to relate to. No mother, no father, no brother, no sister, no grandparents, no cousins. But then a young couple come along and want to adopt you. They've been checked out, they'll be fine. They've even done background checks and discovered certain similarities between theirs and yours. It'll be a good match, a win-win. And they take you to their home. But unknown to you, they live with an anxiety. 
They know that you are not legally theirs for another six months when the court will have to approve the adoption and your new relationship as an adopted child becomes fulfilled. Any time in that six months, the birth mother could change her mind and decide to take you back. Now, the highest privilege of being a Christian believer is that we are no longer spiritual orphans, if in a sense left alone in this world. We have been adopted into the family of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the eternal community of love, the Holy Trinity. But while it is a secure relationship for us, it is not yet complete. We await the final adoption as God's children. That is yet to come. And Paul also expresses glorification in terms of the redemption of our bodies. When I became 60, people and people, you know, would politely ask me, how are you? Suddenly I found myself interpreting that as being a health inquiry rather than a polite social alternative to hello. Now, when you get to that sort of age, the number of birthday cards drops off, but that's where the NHS steps in. You can be sure that they will write to you around about the time of your birthday for one reason or another. So for every year, there's the poo card they send which you fill in and you return to them. If you don't know what I'm talking about, look forward to it. Um, and then when you get to about 64, they send you a letter for an ultrasound, which if you're a bloke, you've probably never had one before and you probably think, well, I'm certainly not pregnant, but then they're not looking for that. They're looking to see the size of your aorta, which mustn't be too big or too small or you're in trouble. And then there's invitations to health checks, which we think, oh, that's very nice of them. Oh, I'll get round to doing that. And of course, we never do. Now, we may think as Christians, you see, that we are being inwardly renewed. And that, in the lives of some people, can be incredibly beautiful to see how Christ changes someone's life. But of course, the NHS knows that outwardly we are wasting away. But at the end of time, at the end of this age, the complete arrival of the new age will come. We, if we're believers, will be given a glorified, a perfected body, like the resurrected body of our Lord Jesus Christ, as seen by over 500 different people who were eyewitnesses of him on a dozen different occasions, over a six-week period, around 30 AD, 2,000 years ago. In fact, the evidence of the risen body of our Lord Jesus Christ is how we know that there is a better life to come, that it's not just wishful thinking. It is rather based on the solid foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ's own resurrection from the dead. And the third reason he gives us is that, verse 12, the night is nearly over, the day is almost here. If you've ever been out at night, we won't go into reasons as to why you're out in the middle of the night, but if you're out in the middle of the night 
and you don't have a tent and you don't have much and you just got to kip down. The coming of the dawn can seem a very long time. At home I have a photograph which people often comment on and think that's a lovely sunset except it's a sunrise. It's from Sharm el-Sheikh at the end of September in 1973, days before the Egyptians recaptured the Sinai from the Israelis at the start of the Yom Kippur War. There being no youth hostels there, in fact there were only two hotels there in those days which were very expensive. The alternative accommodation was the beach. But if all you have is a towel and a wrangler jacket and it gets pretty cold in the night, even in a place like that, then just being in a pair of shorts and a t-shirt, you don't sleep much. The dawn seems a long time coming, so you can take plenty of photographs of it as it arrives. Now, was the Apostle Paul mistaken when he wrote that the day is almost here? It has for us been a long time since he wrote. The night for us seems as if it drags on. There's no sign of the sunrise yet. 2,000 years is a long time if we read him as saying it's pretty imminent. And yet Paul is unlikely to have meant that the end of the world was going to be, say, five or ten years after he was writing because he would have known that if the Lord Jesus didn't know when the return was going to be, he certainly wouldn't. And the other apostles also echo this, because they knew the command of Christ that they were to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now they've made good progress by the mid-60s. They'd reached Rome. They'd probably also managed to reach... Uh, areas north of Turkey and maybe to Iran, even possibly to India, and they made it into Egypt and maybe down to Ethiopia. But they knew there was more of the world that they were, had not yet reached. They also knew that the Jews who rejected the Lord Jesus in his earthly life, that they too would, not all of them, but many of them, eventually respond and be brought back into the Reformed Church, if you like. And they knew that the great apostasy had still to happen. But what the apostles also knew was that the kingdom of God had come with Jesus, that decisive salvation events had established his kingdom, his death, his resurrection, his exhortation to heaven, and his sending of the Holy Spirit had already taken place. They knew that God had nothing left on his timeline to do until the second coming of Christ. Salvation had been achieved. The period we live in is a time to claim that for ourselves until he comes again. They therefore could speak of their time as the last days. <coughs> as such, they should watch out for and be alert for the return of Christ. So having provided them and us with the big picture time frame, what's the appropriate way to behave for the new age? And he makes three appeals to them. Two are in the first person plural, meaning he includes himself, 
and one is in the second person plural, meaning it is a direct summons to us. And each one is a double sentence. There's something positive and there's something negative. So, he continues with the metaphor of day and night, darkness and light, thinking about what is appropriate to wear. So when you wake up, he's saying, um, you have to dress appropriately for the coming day. So take off your PJs or whatever you wear in bed, which he uses to kind of uh, refer to the deeds of darkness, and put on suitable daytime attire as a soldier of Christ, the armour of light, which uh, you can read in detail what that is in Ephesians chapter 6. Now, we're not meant to go through the Christian life in a semi-comatose state. We need to be alert. We're not to drift, but we are to get a grip. It's a battle. We may get tired, we may get discouraged, we may feel unsupported and even opposed, but we have to battle on. We may feel very tempted, but we're not to free wheel. We're not to let ourselves get out of control and so we lose the battle. So, from appropriate clothing, he moves to appropriate behaviour. Positively, he says, let us behave decently as in the daytime. In other words, let's behave as if the day really has dawned, even though, of course, we are still in the night time. Now, some people like to be trendsetters as far as fashion is concerned. Well, we Christians, although it's still the early hours of the morning, that we're to be ahead of the time and adopt the lifestyle of eternity. Negatively, we are to turn from the kinds of things that people do under cover of darkness orgies, drunkenness, sexual immorality, debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy, verse 13. Now, I don't suppose that too many of you have been to an orgy this week, and if you have, you're not likely to put your hand up. But it is the start of the office party season. Now, according to research by a leading recruitment consultancy, only 26% of companies' parties allow you to take your partner. So, at such parties, 43% end up canoodling with colleagues, 22% end up throwing punches, 10% end up taking a few too many clothes off. A report in the Lancet Medical Journal a few years ago on sexual behaviour in Britain revealed that promiscuity was very prevalent at around 20% of 16 to 44 year olds um, have had more than 10 sexual partners in their lifetime. Now one researcher quite astutely observed that television and films showing women in changing sexual partnerships played a significant part in making it more respectable to have more than one, uh, more than one lifetime relationship without being considered, quote, a slag. A second study of 11,000 men and women in the same age group found that 10% of them at any time had a sexually transmitted infection, the most common being chlamydia. 
most infected men and women had no symptoms that they could detect, which is particularly alarming since it is one of the uh, common reasons for infertility as fallopian tubes get blocked. And of course they reported a significant amount of regret. 80% of women and 40% of men regret losing their virginity as teenagers. It is debauchery, or it's, which means our sexual instinct is out of control. And it's wrong because, as even the magazine Cosmopolitan recognises, love plus commitment equals fantastic sex, so they say. In other words, they're only endorsing what the Bible teaches, that the best sex is within a lifelong committed heterosexual marriage. That's the only place God invented it for. Outside of that, it all goes wrong. But you'd expect Paul to be heavy on sexual immorality. But look at what he brackets it with. Maybe we're surprised. Dissension and jealousy. Well, I don't suppose anybody's going to admit that either. But are you ever contentious or envious? Are you an awkward so-and-so at times, wanting your own way, making life difficult for those around you so that you can more easily get yours? And of course, if you're prone to envy, then this is the worst time of the year for you, as you see and hear what other people are getting for their Christmas presents, and you just feel discontented and covetous. And covetousness, mentioned in earlier in the passage we had read to us, is so, or, so often the origin of some of the outworkings of those other sins mentioned, like theft, adultery, and even murder. What's needed is a good dose of peaceableness and contentment. So we need self-control and we need the eternal perspective in those areas of drink, sex and social relationships. And lastly, Paul urges them to get their preoccupation right. Preoccupation is what gives us perspective. Are we preoccupied with the Lord Jesus Christ and the dominant event around which we um, look at life being his, re his return? Are we preoccupied with that or preoccupied with our own self-centeredness? Well, Paul writes, clothe, your, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. The thought here is of a beautiful but also protective clothing. To clothe yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ is to adopt his character and characteristics. By being focused on him and having him live in you through his spirit, you gradually become more and more like him in your personal qualities. And that is a beautiful thing to behold. It is a wonderful counter to our own ugly self-centeredness. That self-centeredness, though, 
is not eradicated by the presence of Christ. In this age, it is still in us. It still urges us to satisfy its desires. But by clothing ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ, or being preoccupied with him and his coming, we are able to protect ourselves from its powerful temptations. Focusing on our Lord Jesus Christ enables us to repudiate these desires and to put them to death. And then we'll be found ready for his return. Let us pray. Let us pray into our lives the truth that's expressed in the collect or the special prayer for this first Sunday in Advent. Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and to put on the armour of light, now in the time of this mortal life, in which your Son, Jesus Christ, came to us in great humility, that on the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal through him who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.